Well, it is a privilege to be here. Uh, we know this church by reputation. I say we. Uh, I travel quite a bit, and it's a rarity for me to have my wife with me, but she is here with me today, so I'm thankful for that. But heard of this church, uh, incredibly thankful for you as a body and how you loved so well uh, a pair of Radius grads that have become church members here. I'm not going to say their names so that we can keep this uh, recording on the internet, and I don't jeopardize their future, where they're going. But uh, yeah, been very thankful to see the church members that are coming out of here, ending up at caravans. And from what I hear, the uh, flow of potential missionaries coming out of this church to reach the nations with the gospel of God's glory. So very, very thankful to be here today. Let me pray first, and then let's dive into what we're going to talk about. Father, we thank you for your grace to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can gather together as the assembled saints, the little outpost of heaven, this side of eternity, knowing that you are in the midst of us. You are the head of the church. And we have the privilege to gather. We have the privilege to worship. We have the privilege to call on you and to look forward to the hope that is ours. Glory in heaven with you, apart from sin and suffering and pain. Someday, Father, help us to be faithful until that day. In Jesus' name, amen. So I am going to dive into a couple passages today uh, from the book of Matthew and the book of Romans, and I'm going to drive at two main points. Number one, the target of the Great Commission is unreached people groups. That's the target of the Great Commission. The church exists for the fulfillment of the Great Commission, The target of the Great Commission is unreached people groups. And then the second point is going to be the fulfillment of the Great Commission is seeing churches planted. Those are the two main thrusts that I'm going to go after today. So we'll get it from Matthew and then we'll get it from Romans 15 as well. But before we get there, I'm just going to give you a little bit of background so you know uh, who is speaking to you. The handful of you that has been down to caravans will have some knowledge of this. Uh, But for the vast majority, um, who is this guy and why in the world is he talking about missions? Uh, So that is part of what I'm going to go after. So my wife and I uh, went to a small Christian college down in San Diego, uh, met each other. I was raised overseas on the country of Papua New Guinea, Uh, came back to the United States, and I wanted desperately to join the Marine Corps. I went into college because my father and me made a deal, and my dad said, if you'll give me two years of college, I'll give you my blessing to join the Marine Corps. And so I went into college, and in freshman orientation, in walks this young lady uh, to be the orientation coordinator, and I waved bye-bye to the Marine Corps that day. (laughs) So I finished up college. Uh, She got a degree in counseling psychology. I got a degree in business administration with an emphasis in accounting. Uh, I found out that I had a peculiar gift for accounting, started working my way up the accounting ladder, eventually signed on as the chief financial officer at 25 years old for a Dutch company, Uh, worked in the Netherlands quite a bit, a little bit in Germany, a little bit in France, and we were able to see our student loans, uh, which were substantial, paid off in about a year and a half. Uh, We started accumulating various things, but by God's good grace, we were faithful members at our local church, Claremont Emanuel Baptist Church in San Diego, California. And through the faithful teaching of our church and through our own time in the Word of God, we were convinced that there was more to live for than jet skis and Mercedes-Benz and a 401k. And so we left that life behind. Uh, We went and got training, training to take the gospel where it has never been before. That's why Radius exists. Most people don't know this, but about 60 to 70% of all North American missionaries that are not trained adequately don't make it past two years on the field. If you're seriously trained, if you're adequately trained, those numbers reverse themselves. And so Radius exists to actually train North Americans, English speakers. We have a branch over in uh, Taizhong, Taiwan that's for the Mandarin church, for the house church in China. But the main branches in the United States are down in Mexico. And we train North American missionaries to take the gospel to the last unreached people groups on the face of the earth today. And we'll talk a lot about that this morning. So we went over to the country of Papua New Guinea. We learned the national language of the country of Papua New Guinea. Um, 
And that, if you're going to take the gospel to somewhere where it's never been before in 2021, you have to learn two languages. You have to learn the language of the country. Then you have to learn the language of the unreached people group. And once we'd learned the national language, uh, the leadership of our organization came to us and they presented us with this list of five tribes, five people groups who had been asking for missionaries for seven years or more. They don't make the list unless they've been asking for seven consecutive years. And there was one group at the tail end uh, that had been asking for 12 years. Blew our mind. Think about that for half a second. 12 years, what we get to do, what we relish, what we love so dearly, never had a word of it. Knew that there were people groups that had, saw what happened when missionaries landed among that people group, We're begging for someone to come in there, and there is still a list today. And so we looked at that list, and we decided the group that had been asking the longest, it was only fair that we go there. And so we we put it on the schedule that we would like to have the airplane take us to that people group, to the closest place. We were going to have to hike about nine hours to get there. Uh, I remember the plane landing at our base camp and the pilot getting out, and the pilot said, uh, I got some good news for you guys because there was five of us on this trip, three missionaries and two of our leaders. And he said, the good news is it's a great flying day, wonderful weather. The bad news is where I was going to drop you off at that particular airfield, it is underwater. They got six inches of rain last night. There is a foot of water on the airfield. You're not going to be landing there today. Do you have a second choice? And so we pulled out this list and there was a second people group on there called the Yembi Yembi people. This was a dominant, hostile, very uh, aggressive group of people, but we saw that our team was uniquely made up to possibly get the gospel in there. And so we said, okay, let's go take a look at this and see what it's like. And so hurriedly, I took a piece of paper, scribbled out on the piece of paper in the national language, uh, we're coming to visit your tribe today. Please be kind. That was about the gist of it because we didn't know what they were going to be like. And so scribbled it on the piece of paper, rolled it up, put it in an empty water bottle. We took off in a Cessna 206, flew for about 45 minutes, got over the people group, could see their houses and where they were located at. The pilot dropped the plane down to about 200 feet over the treetops, turned the plane on its side, opened up the window, and I hucked the water bottle out, and I'll never forget it. There was this little kid who was running to catch the water bottle, and and I'm the one who threw it, and I'm looking, and I'm thinking, I'm going to kill the first yummy yummy we meet. Like, I, <laughs> kid's going to get drilled in the head. It's going to be horrible. He missed the water bottle. They got the letter. We kept flying. We fly because there was no airfield in their area, and we flew for another half hour. We landed at an airfield there. We loaded up in a motor canoe. A motor canoe is a canoe about as long as this room is wide, and it's got a motor on the back of it, and we started motor canoeing for seven hours. And the closer we got to the Yembi people... We made our final stop about 15 minutes away from them, and we could hear the drums pounding out to the whole surrounding village, to everybody in the area that we were coming. We, didn't, we couldn't listen to the drums and understand them at that point, but we knew what they were doing. We pulled into Yembi Yembi, and to this day, if any of you visits Yembi Yembi and you're a Christian, uh, the church members will meet you at the airfield. Back then, there was no church members, but they met us uh, as we got out of the canoe, and if they like you, they'll give you the traditional greeting. And the traditional greeting is they take a huge hunk of mud, they shove it in your face, push it all the way down to your Adam's apple, then they take diced up flower petals, whip those at your face, and it sticks to the mud, and now you're beautiful. Now you're ready to come into the village. And that was our introduction. I mean, when we got out, they were whooping and dancing and everything else, and then boom, boom, and you got mud on your face. And so... That was our introduction to Yembi Yembi. And we took a bunch of video, uh, took a bunch of pictures, language samples, went back to our base camp, told our home churches. One of them was in Nebraska, not ours, but our coworkers, ours in San Diego. This is the people group that we went to visit. We felt like it was an open door, and we ended up going back in there and signing on that we were going to live among this people. And I remember standing up and telling them in the national language, We're going to come and we're going to be your missionaries. What you've heard about being done in these other locations, we're going to come do that here. We're going to do four things. Number one, we're going to learn your language and culture. We're going to learn to speak like you speak because the message we carry is so important, we don't want it to get messed up. 
Number two, we're going to teach you how to read and write in your own language. They did not have a written alphabet. We had to develop that. My wife was a large part of that team that developed the alphabet for the first time. And then number three, we're going to take this really important book and we're going to translate it into your language. We're going to do other books before we get to this book that are much smaller, but this really important book, when we finish it, that's going to be one of the main things we do. And then the last one, we're going to teach you the meaning of this book. And I remember the Yenbi standing up and saying, that's great, wonderful. But if you're going to do all these things and you're going to live among us and you're going to build houses like us and you're going to do all these things, you can't be like outsiders. We know our skin color is different than yours. Your skin color is different, but you need to be adopted into this whole village, into this system. And so uh, there's four clans in Yembe There's the ostrich clan, eagle clan, the black cockatoos, and the toucans. So they looked at me. I've got these long legs and this crooked nose a little bit from playing too much basketball. And they said, you're definitely in the ostrich clan. So that was me. My wife's got blonde hair. They put her in the Eagle Clan, and they put every one of our teammates in there. And then we got adopted, and we had brothers and sisters. We have one son, and he went from being an only child to having 17 brothers and 23 sisters in one day. So we have a large family. It's just a very peculiar family. But we were adopted in. And then I remember them coming up to us about three weeks after we'd been, some three weeks right in the process, and they asked us at night, they got all the men out of the houses, it was about eight o'clock at night, and they asked us, have you ever killed a boar, a wild boar? Because there's a lot of big wild boars out in Yembe There's crocodiles as well, but wild boars. And one of the guys was from Minnesota. He'd worked at a pig farm. He said, uh, yeah, I've killed a pig. And they said, no, no, no. Have you killed a boar at night with a spear by yourself? And all of us looked at each other, no, I've never done that. So they kind of huddled up and they, they came up with a new name for us. Because in Yembe Yembe, a boy changes into a man when he kills a boar at night with a spear by himself. That's the ritual. You don't change into a man until you have done that process. And so uh, they looked at us and they called us overgrown boys. Because we were these large-bodied guys who somehow had been allowed to marry, somehow had been allowed to have kids, and we were still boys. And so we had to take time to learn how to hunt and to learn to walk through the jungle with bare feet and to throw a spear correctly and to have our fathers in the tribe teach us these things. And guys, I explain this all to you because if you're going to take the gospel somewhere where it's never been before to become like the people that you're going to reach, to, to learn to eat like them, to walk like them, to speak their language, to speak it clearly, to get their jokes, to have them understand the way that you communicate, and to see this from the life of the Lord Jesus. Most people skip over this fact, but we have one story of Jesus when he's 12 years old at the temple, but there's no other recorded history other than his birth from birth till 30 years old. What was he doing? He was becoming local. That's the carpenter's son. There's his brothers and sisters. That's Mary and Joseph's boy. He was a known commodity to the Jewish audience. And for those who you are going to send someday to have them with this mentality that we become Christ in flesh. We're not Christ, but we, uh, man, we bring great, great desire to the message of Christ by the way we live. And so it took us two and a half years to get to that point to where we could speak, we could tell different stories and we could speak in abstract and handle Q&A and we told them we are going to start into that fourth thing the teaching of this book because by that time we had developed an alphabet for them we had three literacy classes that had gone through I had translated good portions of the Old Testament was ahead of pace in the New Testament and we told them that this talk we're getting to the fourth thing now and we're going to tell you and I remember telling them this distinctly we're going to tell you what happens what happened before you were born, what's going to happen after you die. We're going to tell you where your ancestors have gone. We're going to tell you all the different things, where this world comes from. Oh my goodness, the talk just rocketing through the village. And you got about a thousand people in our village. And to hear them getting excited for the coming teaching. And finally the day arrived, and we didn't start in Romans, we didn't start in Matthew, we started in Genesis 1.1 to walk them through the God of the universe and knowing their background, knowing their culture, again, the diligent missionary and the God of the Bible and bringing them into direct conflict. You can't believe both of them. Both stories aren't true. One is true, one is false. 
And to see the Yembis grappling with, here's what our spirits are like. Here's what our gods are like. And the God of this book is like none of them. The God of this book is so good. He makes things and he gives freely. And he always tells the truth. He says he's going to do something and he does it. And then to start laying out the thing that was closest to the Yembis' heart, the food, the wondrous food that God creates. We took, so the Yembis have 17 different kinds of bananas, 12 different kinds of sago. Sago is like their version of bread. And so we took on one day and we laid out all the different kinds of food. Then we flew in fruits and vegetables from Australia that they'd never seen in their lives. Apples, oranges, things that were just completely foreign to them that had to be grown in colder cultures. Cutting them up into as small a pieces as possible so as many of them could taste them for the first time in their life. Does God eat food? According to this book, he doesn't. He's spirit. Why does he make such incredible variety? Because he cares about you. He cares about me. God makes good things. That's the kind of God he is to build up his credibility. And guys, to see the Yenbis falling in love with this God who they had never known before, but the book says it. The Yenbis don't have a word for read. They say the paper talks back. The paper is talking about this God who is unlike any other gods. And then getting to Genesis chapter 3, the hinge of humanity. I am convinced that if someone doesn't understand Genesis chapter 3, there's no way they understand Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You don't know what you're being saved from unless you understand Genesis chapter 3. And getting there, and see, the Yembies, the Yembies aren't like you guys. You guys know the appropriate times to laugh, the appropriate times to be quiet, sing, all that kind of stuff. They'd never been in institutional learning. So you've got a thousand people, and when you speak in Yembi Yembi, they sit in a circle around you. The speaker stands in the middle, and there are conversations happening while you're talking. And if they like what you're saying, they'll stand up at any time, and they'll yell, Keep talking! This talk is good to my belly. Thank you. Very kind. And they'll just keep rolling because the belly is the seat of their emotions. Ours is our heart. Heart is broken. Heart is full. That kind of thing. So the belly is theirs. But if they don't like what you're saying, they'll stand up from anywhere and they'll yell, enough of this talk. I'm about to throw this talk up. My belly's sick of this talk. And thank you for that too. And you just keep on trucking. And so you know really well how it's going. So the Yembis, as we would teach, we would act things out. Because for them, they're very concrete learners. So we're acting out the fall of mankind. We taught it from Scripture first. No, 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 show it to us, show it to us. And so we started acting it out. And I have a black bed sheet on, and I'm Satan. And my, or my co-worker's wife, she's Eve. And we're walking around and we're talking loud enough for a thousand people to hear. And when we act these things out, the Yembies don't stay seated like you guys do. They get up and they crowd closer to where you've got a space of about three feet that you're working in. And everybody's just staring down at what you're doing. And so we're walking and I'm talking to my coworker's wife and I'm saying, Eve, Eve, eat the fruit. If you eat the fruit, your eyes are going to be open and you're going to be just like God. Just take a bite. And I'm, I'm enticing her in the Yembi way of enticement. And the Yembis, these are unsaved people, remember. They are cussing her out like nobody's business. <laughs> Eve, you idiot. Look at you. Look at your belly. Where do you think all that food came from? God is so good to you. You're going to stab him in the belly. You're going to do these things. What an idiot. And I mean, just all sorts of stuff are raining down on my coworker's wife. And she reaches out her hand. She grabs a piece of fruit. She takes a bite. And the tribe goes silent. And we start walking through, again, the ramifications of the fall. Thorns and thistles. Man, you're going to work by the sweat of your brow. Guys, to even relate the way that they live, hand to mouth. Gardens go up as soon as they produce, you eat. When the pigs are running well, when there are certain fish, you're able to eat well. The mark of a good family is when the wife has a little bit, of, little bit of fat on her. Your women will have pain in childbirth. Man, 10 to 15% of our women die in childbirth because they don't have modern medicine. Epidurals, who knows what that is. Pain in childbirth, you don't know pain in childbirth until you've seen a 16, 17-year-old girl delivering her first child, and she's anemic herself. And then from dust you came to dust you will return. These are real things, and the Yembies are putting this together. This is why our life is the way it is. This is the promise of God. This is God telling the truth again. 
God doesn't lie. And when he promised these things, they're going to come to pass. But there's another promise in Genesis chapter 3, and I'll never forget this. We had heard this analogy, and we pulled a branch off of a fig tree that was growing outside of the teaching house. We don't have a church building. We have a teaching house. The church gathers in the teaching house. And we hung this branch, and the branch, we ripped it off. It was a big, thick branch, and then it went down to smaller branches, and then it went down to leaves. And as we continued to teach for the next three months, the leaves at the end of it turned brown, then they turned black, then they fell off. The promise of God that when our ancestor, Adam, broke out from God, the ramifications of that would trickle down to us. But there's another. Someday I'm going to send someone who's got the power to put the branch back in the tree, to make things right between God and man. And guys, when we got to the next character, I'll never forget this, we're in the next character in the, in the drama of the scripture, and we get to Cain and Abel. And I'm talking about Cain, and one of the MB stands up and he goes, wait, 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 wait. Stop the talk, stop the talk. This one that you speak of, Cain, is he the one? And I said, what do you mean? Is he the one who's going to put the branch back in the tree? No, he's not the one. He's not the one. Okay, okay. He sits back down. They razz him and all sorts of stuff. Every Old Testament character that we introduced, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, Moses, someone stands up and asks the question, is he the one? Is he the one who's going to get us out of this? Who's going to make things right between God and man again? Guys, think about the implications of that. The Old Testament, what it was meant for, pointing to the one who will come pointing to the one who will save us from our sins. The privilege of my life was getting to John chapter 1 and saying the one is about to come on the scene. In the next couple weeks, you're going to hear about the one. And John the Baptist sees Jesus walking alongside the river Jordan, and John the Baptist says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The envies, about seven of them stand up. Wait, 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 wait. Lili jono li daromonima, lili dokinoknima lomonamadugwanes. This one that Jono is speaking of, is he the one? Or are we waiting for another? He's the one, guys. He's the one. Oh, my goodness. I mean, the whole place, again, this is the Yembe audience. So just yelling and people are throwing stuff and like, stop the talk of John who dunks in water. Who cares about him? Tell us about this one. We want to excited beyond words. And guys, I don't have time to walk you through as they started to fall in love with Jesus, who came for people like them, who healed people that were broken, who went to the off-scouring. Jesus didn't hang out the TGC conferences or like with the big leaders. Jesus hung with ordinary people. He actually hung with the lowest of the low. There's a reason why the Yembis were so late in hearing the gospel. We're going to get into that. Why the people groups that are left today in 2021 are the last ones. It's not by accident. It's not like some random thing. They're hard to get to. They have difficult languages. You see them fall in love with the Christ. And finally, the day came when we were able to present the death, burial, and resurrection. And we had about 50 that understood the gospel clearly, were saved from their sins, and how those 50 grew and how they lived and how they changed their habits, how they shared with their wives for the first time. Women weren't allowed to eat pig meat during their pregnancies. So they're getting worse. They're getting anemic as they go along. And the believers' wives are starting to get healthy and things are starting to change in their families and the way that their kids live and how those 50 lived attracted the other members of the community to where today the church is over half of the village. It has its own elders and its own deacons and sending out its own missionaries. And in 2016, we wrapped up that work. We were able to put the New Testament and large portions of the Old Testament into their hands in their own language and to walk away from that church with its own teachers, its own pastors, its own elders, and privileged to go back every year to see and recognize how far they have grown and how they're doing so well. So that's a little bit of the background that we're heading into our passages this morning. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28, 16. Let's look back again at our key themes. The Great Commission is given for unreached people groups, number one. And then number two, the fulfillment of the Great Commission is seeing churches planted. So Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee 
to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The first thrust is at verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Those of you that have read Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper, that's a primer for missions. If you haven't read that book yet, read that book. If you don't have a lot of time, read chapter 5. But looking at this phrase, all nations, the Greek of this is pantata ethne. Ethne being the word that we get the word ethnicities from. So the Great Commission is not going to Germany, Spain, Papua New Guinea, and the United States. Those are not nations. That's not what this phrase is meaning. This is meaning getting to all the ethnic groups. And the defining marker for an ethnic group, head and shoulders above all others, is what? Language. Language. That's what separates one ethnic group from another. So in essence, the king is saying, go to all of the language groups on the face of the earth, make disciples of them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the task of the church, to get to every one of those ethnic groups. If you're reading this and understanding the way that the original apostles understood it. This is the thing that gets lost sometime on the church. A lot of people don't recognize this. There's 13 apostles. So you guys remember Judas falls away. Matthias takes his place. So we're back to 12. Then you've got Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. So you've got 13 apostles. Of the 13 apostles, 12 of them died in foreign lands. James was martyred so fast that he died in his home country. 12 of the 13 died in foreign countries. What did the apostles know? What did they believe? What did they hold to that they died in Syria, Russia, India, Italy? Not in Israel. Not in Galilee. They died in foreign countries. What did they believe? They believed this. They held, we've got to keep going. We keep pressing on to the places that still don't have the gospel. This is the, these are the foundations, the pillars of the church. This is what they held to, and they lived it out. I remember when I was translating the book of Romans, I did all of the Pauline epistles. I was in charge of those. I was in charge of all the Gospels, except for the Gospel of Mark and a, a large chunk of the Pentateuch. Uh, that was my responsibility in translating in the MBMB. And I was working through the book of Romans. It was my first epistle, and I was having some hard times with it. And I remember going through my source text, which you had to have a modified literal. Those of you guys that aren't Bible students wouldn't know what that means. But anyways, modified literal. And then I was having a hard enough time to where I reached for a study Bible. And my coworker, the Yembi who was working with me, his name's Tarangawi. Tarangawi's watching me. And I told Tarangawi when we started translating, when we started in Genesis 1-1, Tarangawi, we're only going to come from this book. We're not going to pull from other books. We're going to come from Scripture alone. He didn't know what that meant until he was a Christian, but we're going to pull from one book. And so he sees me grabbing a study Bible out, and I start flipping to Romans chapter 2, and Tarangawi goes, wait, 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 wait. What are you doing? I thought we were only translating from this book. I said, Tarangawi, this is another version in my language. And Tarangawi did what all Yembis do when they get surprised. And he goes, and it starts to dawn on me what's, what's happening right now. And Tarangawi goes, how many versions do you have in your language? How many versions of this book do you have? Guys, I'll be honest with you. It was a very shameful moment for me, but I, I lied. I straight up lied. I said, we have about seven to ten. We got about seven to ten. I came back to the United States and I looked it up. You know how many versions of the Bible we have in our language? Over eight you add the study Bibles and you're getting into the thousands. Does God love the English-speaking world so much more than the rest of the world? Or have we missed something critical in these final marching orders to the church? Keep going. Go to the nations. 
Keep going to those groups. Keep going to the Tuari, to the Amto, to the Sino. Who will go to them? The church will. The church will. This is what animated the apostles. And then it says this in verse 20. Lest we don't see the church in here, it says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Guys, you're a well-taught church, and so this may not be far for you to understand or be hard for you to grasp, but a church that has faithful church members is a faithful local church. Membership in a local church is important. It's important enough because that's how the elders know who they're responsible for, to be a part of the local body. Bedside Baptist, internet church, that's not real church. Gathering together as a local community in person to gather together to hear the word of God taught, to worship, to pray, and to see each other and to hold each other accountable, that's a church. And so the what Matthew is speaking of here is teaching them everything I have commanded you. That's the local church. We gather regularly. We hear the word of God taught. We disciple one another. We are discipled by the taught word of God. This is what the Christ intended as the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Gather them together. Disciples are a great first step. Being converted is a great first step. But if they're not gathered into churches, they fade away in one generation. I've been in missions long enough to see churches that aren't established strongly die. Churches are like baby humans. Baby humans don't do well unless they're protected, unless they're fed, unless the adversary, the enemy of them is kept away. They die. The same with baby churches. Churches are meant to be the fulfillment of the Great Commission. We see them brought into the kingdom, then we see them gathered, then we see them sent out to produce their own churches. We taught the Yembiembis from 2007 all the way through to 2010, had a church going, didn't have elders, didn't have deacons, and we stayed six more years to see that church brought into full strength with elders, with deacons, what you saw here this morning. We have a version of that ceremony. It doesn't take a lot to understand. It's a lot different. But we have a version of that same thing to see leadership brought in. This is the fulfillment of the Great Commission. And so you don't think this is just something that Brooks or that Matthew came up with. Let's look at Paul's version of these two main thrusts. Turn over to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15 Believe it or not, the book of Romans is a really elaborate, really doctrinally tight missionary support letter. Paul is asking for support from the church of Rome as he's getting ready to go on his final missionary journey. Church history tells us that Paul got out of prison in AD 67. He ends up going to visit Titus on the island of uh, Crete, and then he goes to Nicopolis and he writes the book of Titus and First and Second Timothy, then he heads on this final journey. But before he got out of prison, he sent this letter to the Romans. And you don't see the heartbeat of Paul until you get to chapter 15, which is the functional end of the book of Romans. Paul is speaking here about what he wants to do and why he wants to do it. And there's some shocking stuff in here if you study it to understand Paul saw his ambition to get to places that still hadn't heard. And so let me read this passage really quickly. We're going to break this up into three chunks, and then we'll get into the final two points of this. It says this in Romans 15, verse 18 through 19. For I will not speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem... All the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Two points. Number one, I want to make, just do a quick touch. Look at this part where he says, by word and deed. What he means there is by the teaching of the word. There is a lot of strange missiologies in 2021. You're going to hear stories about churches being planted in weekends. Christians being raised up by the thousands in places where there have been none before. 
Be very careful when you hear those stories. The two first questions that should come to your mind is, what do you mean by a local church? What do you mean by becoming a Christian? Those are the two big litmus tests in missions today. Because what we know from Scripture is, it's not through strange things, it's not through tongues, it's not through dreams and visions. Never in Scripture do we see dreams and visions leading someone to Christ. We see it leading them to someone who does lead them to Christ. But we don't see aberrant ways bringing people into the family of God or churches established. What we see is the ordinary means of grace. The teaching of the word of God regularly bringing people to maturity over time. That has been the ordinary normal means of grace for the past 2,000 years. And Paul is speaking to that here. By the power of signs and wonders... Praise God that he used those to complement the the Apostle Paul's mission. But the faithful teaching of the word of God, first and foremost, was the tool to bring about change. And then he says this incredible part. Here's the main thrust. So that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Catch what he's saying. This is not some small little remark. This is huge. From Jerusalem all the way around to modern day Albania, I have fulfilled the ministry of Christ. You know what he's saying? There's nothing left to do. For Paul, the pioneer missionary, this was a reached area. It would be like somebody standing up in front of you today and saying, guys, from Seattle to Orlando, Florida, there's nothing left to do. Nothing left to do in missions. That's what Paul is claiming here. And Paul doesn't stop at that claim. He doubles down. He says it again. But in order to understand this, we're going to pull out verses 20 to 21, or 20 to 22, and we're going to jump to verse 23. Because in Scripture, in Paul's writings especially, what they used to do was the main point was right in the middle. It's called a chiastic pattern. And so we usually, when we tell stories, the main point's at the tail end. And that's why you don't eat McDonald's before you run a marathon or something like that. Like you get the main point at the end. Theirs is in the middle. So we're going to skip the middle and come back to it. But we get to verse 23 and he doubles down on this idea that there's nothing left to do. Verse 23, but now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions and since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. And to be helped on my journey there by you, once I've enjoyed your company for a while. Catch what he said. No more room for work in these regions. Church historians tell us that from Jerusalem all the way up to Illyricum, less than 2% of the population had even been exposed to the gospel. And Paul says, done. Nothing left to do. How can he say that? How can he claim that? You know how? Because there was little outposts of light from Jerusalem all the way up to Illyricum. There's a church in Jerusalem. There's a church in Galatia. There's a church in Ephesus. There's a church in Thessalonica. These churches in Paul's mind constituted a reached region. You know why? Because where churches are, there are hundreds, sometimes dozens, sometimes thousands of missionaries. We don't call them missionaries. You know what we call them? Church members. Tehachapi, according to Paul's metrics, is a reached area. You know why? You live here. This is your community. These are your neighbors. These are your coworkers. These are your people. Man, you're the minority. You're a small group. But the gospel is here. The light of the gospel exists. San Diego, California, praise God, is a reached area according to this metric. Why? Because of Shadow Mountain Community Church. Because of Claremont Emanuel Baptist Church. Because of the Rock Church who faithfully, expositionally teach the word every Sunday. And the church members from those churches are involved in the local community. Paul has a different metric for who is reached and who's not reached. Now, let me caveat this really quickly, lest everybody say, oh, no, what if we plant another church down the way? Praise God. 
Praise God for another faithful gospel preaching church that is raised up to reach Tehachapi, to reach California. Lord knows we need it in California. But Paul doesn't minimize strengthening existing churches. Remember at the end of 2 Timothy, Paul sends Titus to Crete. Why? Strengthen the local church. He sends Timothy to Ephesus. Strengthen the local church. Paul doesn't see a separation. Oh, that's missions, that's not. Paul says, this is what I'm about as a pioneer missionary. There are others to do the other job. There are others to strengthen churches. But there has to be a segment of Paul's raised up within our churches to take the gospel where it's never been before. Then I tell you what, when I was getting the tour this morning, first time I've been in your guys' building, walking through the hallways over there at break time, seeing the amount of kids coming out. Guys, are you raising up faithful Pauls? Are you raising up Gladys Allwards, Amy Carmichael's, Adniram Judson's. People get really excited about missions and yeah, let's send our young people until it's their sons and daughters. Do you raise them up with the idea that some of them may be called by God to take the gospel to the Spains, to the Britons, the places that have nothing? Paul kept going, not because there wasn't an unreached area. Please, San Diego, Tehachapi, California. There's needs all over the place. Every sin known to mankind exists here. It's not because it's under, because there's a church here. Where is there none? Where is there none? Where do our sons and daughters, where do we spend them in the cause of the king that will make sense eternally? Paul says it's in places where there are no missionaries. And I love this passage. He doesn't forget the other side of the equation. In verse 24, he says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. John Piper says this the best, I think. If you haven't read that book or other John Piper books, Piper's really big on missions and he's big on it in the right way. He says, if you believe this book to be true, you have three options when it comes to missions. You're either a goer, you're a sender, or you're a disobeyer. But you're one of the three. There's not a fourth category. You're a goer, which many of you in here, that's not going to be possible because you've got to be of a certain age to learn a language and to get to those places. It's going to be difficult. The last 3,100 people groups on the face of the earth today in 2021, 3,112 is about the last count that still have no gospel, no disciples, and no church, they're really hard to get to. The reason they're the last ones is because they're in countries that are hostile to the gospel. To go, you're going to have to pay a price. But then the other half is the senders, the ones who faithfully stand behind, who are the bottom of the pyramid, holding those ones up who are going. I love hearing the, reading the biography of William Carey. Now, William Carey and his friends sat around and they talked about sending William off to India. And they made this analogy that, William, it's like sending you off and sending you down a dark well, a deep, deep, deep dark well. And we're going to send you down there. But don't forget, William, we're going to be at the top of the well holding the rope, letting the rope down slowly. That's the sender's. And I'm convinced of this, guys, that someday when the king returns, he's going to ask the ones who went down the well, show me your hands, the goers. Show me how closely did you stay connected to your local church? How closely did you hold to what you knew to be true? Show me your hands. Show me what it cost you. But for everybody at the top of the well, letting the rope down, he's going to ask to show them their hands as well. Show me your hands. What did it cost you? Or is it only the young ones? Is it only the ones who leave that are going to have a price tag associated with missions? Do you drive an older car? Do you live in a smaller house? Do you have a skinnier 401k? For the sake of the nations, you're going to be an active part. You're going to be a pillar in this local church. Man, you're going to be the one organizing the prayer times when they're going through the fire over there. Who's going to form the team to go visit them? You know what? I'll be there. 
We'll take our vacation. We'll cut it in half because we'll be there. Who's going to be the senders with scars on their hands? Praise God for the Roman church who sent Paul faithfully to Spain. May it be said of country oaks. We sent our goers. We sent our best. And we were the best senders. We sent well. It cost us. Even the secular world knows that something of value costs you. You know what's cheap? Something of lower quality. You're a goer or you're a sender, but you're one of the other. So we get to Paul's main thrust here. Back to verses 20 and 21. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Not everybody is a goer. To get to the ends of the earth will cost. To get to the ends of the earth will be one of those things that will be part, Lord willing, of your congregation's DNA. But we all have some aspect of the Great Commission so that the King's name is known in parts where it is not today. When we wrapped up in Yembe Yembe, uh, the teaching, first time going through, and we had the first 45 to 50 believers I remember laying in bed at night, and in Yembe, our house was up on these big posts, about this big around. So about 16 of them held up our house, and this is how all Yembe Yembe houses were built. And uh, at night, when the Yembe's needed me, they knew where our kitchen was, they knew uh, where the bathroom was, they knew where our bedroom was, and they had this long, skinny pole. And I found that pole about 20 times, and I burned it and destroyed it, but it's the jungle. They found a new one. And so they would take this long pole, and they knew my head's right here, and they would hit the bottom of the floor. And, I mean, you've got about this much board underneath you, and when they hit it with a pole, your head bounces off the floor about an inch. And, I mean, you just think Christ is returned. Like, you, you're startled out of your sleep. So sure enough, two weeks after we present the gospel, whop, whop, the bottom of the floor where my head's at, and I get up, and I go to the window, and I yell out there, who is it? Who is it? And it's a typical Yembe uh, response. They go, it's me, it's me. (laughs) I know it's you. Who are you? It's me, your tribal father. Oh, man, this is serious. And so uh, my tribal father's the head of the ostrich clan, and so went outside uh, with my flashlight. And in Yembe Yembe, it's rude to shine your flashlight on somebody's eyes. It ruins their night vision. So you shine it on their feet. And they can recognize literally every one of them, all 1,000 people, by their feet. Well, I, of course they can recognize my feet, but I can't recognize a thing. And so I'm looking at their feet, and I have no idea who's standing in front of me. There's seven of them. And so I work my way up to the kneecaps, and I recognize those shorts and recognize that belly button. And so finally I figure out these are seven believers. These are seven people who understand that they've been saved by, by Christ's work from everlasting Dalmatian. And so they, uh, they're standing there, and I go, okay, guys, what's going on? Did somebody get bit by a snake? Did something happen? And they said, no, uh, we want to know when we're going. And I said, what do you mean? Well, if what the book says is true, then our sister village across the way, Changriman, they're going to the place of fire. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. That's true. So when are we going? Is it tomorrow or will it be the next day? When are we going? Two weeks old in the faith. First impetus, first thing they want to do. How do we get to those places that haven't heard yet? How do we get to Changriman, our sister village? Two weeks old. Guys, when we came back to the United States in 2016, and uh, in the last five years, I have had one really big church and one really wealthy businessman offer to fly the Yembe elders and their wives over to the United States for their missions conference. And I wouldn't do it for two reasons. Number one, it would blow their world apart. The airplane flight alone would just be too much. Costco and California freeways would just, it would torch their world. But the second reason is, I told the the wealthy businessman, I told him, brother, you don't know what you're asking for. You don't even know what you're asking for. You think this would be a good thing, this would be a bad thing. Because the Yembis would stand up in front of a congregation 
And remember, the Yembies are the ones who, even today, when I go back every year, if you've got one of the elders in training and he starts to veer away from the word of God and he's, when he's speaking, the mamas in the church will yell from the back, the canoe's turning, the canoe's turning. <laughs> this poor elder in training just gets shamed into, okay, I, I guess I didn't know what I was talking about very well. Uh, they're the ones who yell from the back, enough, enough, this talk is hurting my belly. They would stand up in a church like this. They would say, how long have you had this talk? How many years have you known this to be true? When are you going? When are you going? Guys, not all of you can be goers, but you can be faithful senders. You can be faithful parents. You can be faithful Sunday school teachers. Raise up your next generation. Get behind the young men and women who are coming through these halls who will take the gospel to the places where it's never reached before, to be faithful to the king's last command. There is no plan B. It's the church, and that's the plan. Faithful church members going out to reach the Spains, to reach the Britons, the places that still have no gospel, no disciples, no church. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for your grace to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you for leaving, sending your son, having him come live among us to eat our food, to walk our paths, to experience everything just like we are yet without sin. Thank you for that living example that you loved us enough to go through those things to see that separation from your family. Father, we pray that Country Oaks would be a beacon of light, not just to the Tehachapi community, but to the ends of the earth, to the nations. Raise up soldiers from amongst these young men and women. Lord, we pray that you would raise up behind them faithful church members that would stand in the gap, that would hold the rope as they go down the well. Lord, not for their glory, but for your glory. So that someday when we're all gathered together and our life on this earth has been expended, we can say it was worth it. It was worth it. Lord, that we held nothing back. We lay it all before your feet, Lord, and we pray for your soon return. Make us faithful until that day. In Jesus' name, amen.